Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. My name is Jim, and I am one of the pastors here. Happy Thanksgiving weekend, everybody. Thank you so much for being here to worship Jesus with us today. Hey, Auditorium One, you guys look beautiful over there. Um, and if you are new, it's uh, really good to have you. If you have any questions about life here at Fellowship, please stop by our first-time guest center in the Commons, which is over near Auditorium One. We have a team there that can't wait to serve you. And members and regulars, you should know the drill by now. Go say hey and bother our friends out at Next Steps if you're looking to get further involved. We have a team there also that can help you in any way uh, they can. Um, as many of you know, we are going through on Sunday mornings the book, the New Testament book of Ephesians. So we started in August. <clears throat> We've got a couple more weeks on this thing and we'll wrap up before Christmas and Ephesians. Is all about God's plan for his church. Chapters one through three in Ephesians is about the work of salvation, how God has saved and he is saving us through the gospel of Jesus and how he has unified and is unifying us through the gospel of Jesus. And now <clears throat> Ephesians chapter four through six is about the walk of salvation. So Paul in this last section uses the word walk to help us with what it should be like to embody this gracious salvation. And last week we talked about how this is a life that is open to and yielded to the Holy Spirit. And so for the rest of our time in Ephesians, Paul talks about two things, <clears throat> spirit-influenced relationships and spirit-empowered warfare, what we normally call spiritual warfare. Essentially, our passage last week was a springboard for the rest of the entire book. So if you wanna go ahead and get there, that'd be awesome, Ephesians chapter Five, and we're gonna keep thinking this morning about God's plan for his church as it relates to spirit-influenced relationships. Ephesians 5, we will get there in a couple few minutes. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had to pick the most quintessential 90s movie, now, again, I'd love to hear your, your votes later, but if I had to pick it, it would be Forrest Gump, and here's why. <clears throat> One, I'm a sucker for coming of age movies and I went to high school in the 90s, so run, force, run. I got no options, it's my choice. Now, here's the deal. If you remember, the movie starts with a two minute clip of just a feather slowly floating through the air. Not kidding, two entire minutes, that's just what you're looking at as the John Williams soundtrack like kind of starts up, I think that's Williams, and, and the score kind of starts. And then it gently, the feather gently lands at Forrest's feet, he gently picks it up, and then he opens a curious George book that his mama gave him and he puts the feather in the middle of the Curious George book and he shuts it. Then fast forward to the last scene in the whole movie, Forrest is with his son, Forrest Jr., as the bus picks him up for Forrest Jr.'s first day of school, and he gives Forrest Jr. the same copy of the same Curious George book that his mom gave him, and when he does, the feather falls out. <clears throat> and then as the bus drives away, a breeze picks up the 1994 CGI feather, and we watch it slowly, slowly again float away and credits, and that's what happens. That's what happens. That's, that's the bookends of Forrest Gump, and here's what I love about this. This is actually an ancient literary storytelling technique. To begin something and end something the same way is to tell you what the whole story is all about. So what is the floating feather communicating? What is the Forrest Gump story all about? Well, thankfully, Forrest tells us directly, and I'm not gonna try the accent. He says, my mama always said, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're gonna get. He could have said, my mama always said, life is like a feather in the breeze. You never know where you're gonna float. He could have done that. And that's what, that's what the feather is saying. And if you watch the whole movie, it's, it's funny. His life is a random chocolate and it's a feather floating in the breeze. 
So why in the Moses am I telling you about feathers and Forrest Gump? Thank for asking. Because not only, and this is where it gets fun, not only do smaller sections of the Bible and entire books of the Bible do this, but the whole Bible has its own feathers. So if you go to Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, you'll see that the bookends of Holy Scripture both include powerful pictures of marriage. So the first pages of the Bible include the marriage of God and humanity, of heaven and earth, and of Adam and Eve. And then you go to the last book of the Bible, in Revelation 21, 22, the last pages, we see heaven and earth joined together again. And when that happens, fully and finally, they're brought together again. Jesus, the groom, is united with his bride, the people of God, or as John the Revelator says, the marriage of the Lamb. So what are the marriage bookends communicating? What's the story of the Bible all about? Well, these bookends let us know that scripture is a story about God pursuing covenant love and intimacy with humanity. That's the whole story of the Bible. Despite our pride, despite our sinfulness, despite our wayward and deceived hearts, God longs to draw us into covenant life and partnership with him. And to me, that's beautiful. And to me, one of the most immediate and practical applications of this is that our marriages mean more than we could ever, ever, ever imagine. Think about it with these, <clears throat> with these bookends in view. If you are a follower of Jesus and you're married or you're getting ready to get married, your marriage is not supremely about you finding the one or you having found the one. It's not foremost about like your emotional, relational needs being met. Your marriage is not mainly about your comfort or your finances or your dreams or your sex life or your personality or your kids or your schedule or your preferences. If you're a Christian, if you follow Jesus and you wanna follow him with all your heart, your marriage is about putting God's love on display. Your marriage should be like this rehearsal and reenactment of his unwavering, pursuing covenant faithfulness. So like, I'll do all the specifics that I just mentioned, do all those things matter? Yes, especially in as much as they help you parade around the grace upon grace that we have in Jesus. In fact, I have on my phone little weekly reminders at different times during the day and during the week to help me pray for people and pray for different things. And when the one comes up that I have to pray for Fellowship Green, well, I'll pray more than just once a week for our church, but I have a specific one. And when it comes up, one of the first things that often comes to my mind so fast is to pray for marriages in our church, that husbands and wives at Fellowship Greenville would continually reframe their marriage around God's love and that marriages here would be saturated with a sense of humility and loyalty and generosity like we see in the gospel. I pray that for us. Again, there is more at stake in our marriages than we could ever, ever, ever imagine. Now, quick aside, for my unmarried friends, some of you might be like, done with you already, bro. You're not telling me about this thing, and if I'm not married, you're not, you're not doing that. Just take a deep breath. Look, look, look. Here's how I think you should maybe be processing this. One, us married people need some help. So not only is this going to help you uh, like encourage us, but it can, it, you can hear this, and it will help you hold us accountable. Because also, one day, if you get married, you're gonna need biblical expectations as you approach marriage. And also, um, serious talk for my unmarried friends. Um, if you ever feel at this church <clears throat> like marriage is where the real spirituality happens, um, I'm so, so sorry. We do not intend that at all. And further, if you would like to think 
about what, might be God, what God might be doing in your season or your singleness, uh, we did a specific message in the summer of 2017 called Singleness and the Gospel, and I encourage you to go back and listen to that. And spoiler alert, in 1 Corinthians, Paul basically says that you're more spiritual if you're married, so take that, married people. Um, I even know a really conservative guy who wrote a book on how a lot of conservative Christians overemphasize marriage, and he called his publisher, and he said he wanted to name the book Focus Off the Family, um, which is a different conversation. <clears throat> all together. Um, <laughs> addition, <laughs> I could get in trouble. But additional, additional um, word to my friends here who are divorced. Um, I can't fathom the fragility of the journey that you have been on. And I do hope that as we consider marriage today, <clears throat> that God ministers his peace to your heart in a special way as we consider his faithfulness and his unfailing love. And if your divorce is something that you need to keep processing, please, please, please let us know and we'd love to pray and talk and think with you about all that. Now, back to, uh, to us married people for just a little bit here. If the Bible's bookends are not feathers but marriage, and if our marriages are meant to be unique display cases of God's love to the world, then how do we need to rethink them? Like, Shouldn't it change the way that you treat your wife if you see your partnership with her as a union that is meant to reflect God's glory to other people? And shouldn't it change the way that you treat your husband if you view your marriage as an opportunity for other people to sense God's compassion and love? And I, I know this isn't easy. I've walked with people at different places in their marriage journeys, from engaged to married to no kids to have kids to separated to remarried to empty nest and, and all the points in between. This is always a layered and textured and needed venture to reprioritize one another for something bigger than us, not for our story, but for God's. So this is how we're gonna ask it today. How should we reimagine our marriages so that they point to God and not us? That is our question for today. How should we reimagine our marriages so that they point to God and not to us? Like how, how can our marriages be little windows through which people can see the bigger marriage love bookends of the Bible? That's what we're talking about and that's what we have to feel the gravity of. So that's why we're gonna try to reimagine marriage so that, <clears throat> so that it points to God and not to us. And today, to help us out, the Apostle Paul will help us answer our question today in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. That is our passage for this morning, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, if you'd like to follow along in your copy of the scriptures. Also, <clears throat> I'm actually going to take a step back and start reading in verse <clears throat> 21 because it's an important uh, pickup to everything else that Paul says here in this passage. So here we go, Ephesians 5, starting in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And also, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Now, God's word for God's people is intended for human joy, human flourishing, and for God's glory. And in Paul's mind, this word is intended to do that. This word is intended to aim us at the gospel. But the first temptation in the history of the world, I don't know if you know this, but the first temptation in the history of the world is the snake saying, hey, did God really say? Meaning he twisted God's word and lured people to wrongly respond to it. And in a similar fashion, I believe that this passage has been twisted and misused and misapplied time and time again. So before we get to the life-giving power of this word, uh, just a quick few words about what isn't said here and how we shouldn't respond to this, okay? Um, So let's just state the obvious. Ephesians 5, does not teach that all women should submit to all men. That is unbiblical, that is unhealthy, and I think that is ignorant. And if you've ever been in any church where that was felt or that was taught, uh, personally, I'm glad you're not there anymore. Also, the church is supposed to be a big family and the Christian family is meant to be like a little church. And this passage and others do not infer that a woman's basic role in either space is silence, whether it's the church or the home. That is not the case for a million reasons. Uh, for personal reasons uh, and for intellectual and emotional reasons, Every, from, from my mama to uh, awesome godly women that are scholars, I would be in all kinds of trouble if I didn't have the voices of incredible godly women in my life. Additionally, <laughs> actually read the Bible. Deborah is a boss in Judges 4 and 5, a gangster. She's a gangster. Okay, Phoebe in Romans 16 is a deacon. Uh, Yodia and Syntyche, they needed to chill out a little bit in, in Philippians chapter 4, but they were still valued voices at the church of Philippi. Uh, Lydia was a deep-pocketed benefactor for the church in Acts 16. And my daughter Anna Jubilee's personal favorite is Anna the prophetess in Luke chapter 2. Uh, Beyond this, I have heard thousands of things related to this passage from couples here at church. I have heard people at this church say, my husband needs to do a better job of leading me so that I can actually enjoy submitting. I've heard people at this church say that this passage implies that women can't work outside of the home, which is just kind of strange to me, and I see that nowhere in this passage. I know incredible godly families where dad stays at home and mama's out making it rain. I know those people. They're awesome people. I also know that there are women in this church who have been told at other churches that they just need to submit to their husbands despite his gaslighting and emotional and even physical abuse. And that is an astronomical distortion of this passage and may God have mercy when stuff like that happens. And so sometimes because of that, I know married women who say things like, I I don't and I won't submit to my husband because we are in this thing together. To which I say, yes and amen, absolutely, marriage is a dance, it's a partnership, it's a union, but still, 
how do we consider the words and the language of scripture here in Ephesians 5? I even once had a conversation about marriage with a group of summer interns and a few girls uh, in the summer intern class said, I can't wait to submit to my husband one day. And another girl in the same class said, yeah, y'all crazy, like in the same little space. So it was quite a delight. My point is, I've heard most every response you can have from every angle about this passage, right? And these conversations are fragile enough when we come to the Bible with our own emotional baggage and preferential and personal baggage. But guess what? We're also called to hold to the Bible's views on marriage in a cultural space that has made marriage largely a contractual civil union that should just kind of coddle our most recent whimneys whimsies. Like marriage in popular culture is often built around sentimentality, uh, tax breaks, having kids, or, or just merely having one's needs met. And scripture's ultimate concern is not those things. Scripture's ultimate concern is our heart. It's the goal of marriage, the purpose of marriage, the root of marriage. And so as we reimagine marriage for a little bit so that it points to God and not us, here's just what I want to do. <clears throat> I want to make Two brief, big, broad observations from this passage, and then I wanna talk about the details a little bit, like, like an hourglass here, some of the details, and then I wanna zoom back out and restate the broad observations. So the forest, a couple trees, and then go back to the, the forest gump again, and uh, that'll fill out the answer to our question. So here we go, observation one, observation one. If you take this passage in Greek, there are about 200 words in Greek in this passage, and you ready? Over half of them are not about earthly marriage, but about Jesus and the church. Why? Because Paul knows about the Bible bookend stuff. He knows about it. He knows that Christian marriage is a metaphor bigger than the reality that we experience it to be. So here's observation one. It is straightforward. It is simple. It is direct. Your marriage should be a place where you are nudged to love Jesus more. Your marriage, man, I hope and I pray that this is true. Your marriage better be a place where you are shoved and pushed and nudged to love Jesus more. Not instantaneously, over time, because of the patience and the forgiveness and the struggle and the highs and lows of your marriage, you should be pushed to see Jesus' perfect love and forgiveness toward his people. Look at verse 26. Jesus wants to sanctify his bride, to cleanse her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. This does not mean that you'll do marriage perfectly. This does not mean that your spouse will do marriage perfectly. It means that you'll realize that you need Jesus' help in your marriage because he does marriage perfectly. So for me, I really didn't think about this when we first got married. Like, what are the ways that Sarah's gonna help me love and trust Jesus more? Like, to me, it was just a big, it was there. It was a category. It was fuzzy. But I just never thought about the details of it. And if I did, it was probably like, watch me, like, impress her with big Bible words. Like, it was, it was an arrogant thing rather than a willing to listen and grow thing. But over time, I tell you, my, wife, my wife's honesty and her simplicity of faith have been an anchor for me, and I would, be, I would be lost at sea without them. Like, not only is she kind and brilliant, but that kindness and brilliance are married to a patience in her that I don't naturally have, and that's how she pushes me to love Jesus more, and I have to have that. Now, right now, if you're thinking, <clears throat> Thompson, hey, that's cute, buddy. Listen, you're the pastor, you're supposed to say cute stuff like that, but when I think about my marriage, it makes me wanna throw rocks, dude, not be like, I love Jesus more. I wanna punch walls, okay, that's what I wanna do. Look, if that's how you're thinking, well, 10 points for honesty, way to go. I mean, we can, we can start there, 
But what you might need is you might need to just start to process these things with somebody. Maybe you need some marriage counseling to help refocus your heart. Like your biggest problem in marriage is not the other person, it's, it's often just you. And, or maybe you need to come and do our re-engage class on Wednesday nights. God has used that class big time in so many people's lives. And I think, I also think that the specifics that we're getting ready to talk about um, will help you as you process your marriage. But <clears throat> what I'm talking about here is the biggest, broadest objective of this passage. Our marriages should help us love Jesus more. And that's inseparable from observation two, which is this. Your marriage should also be a place where you are nudged to love the church more. So this is not just an extension from the first one. This is buy one, get one free. Your marriage should be a place where you're nudged to love the church more. Now, this this is really logical. You're supposed to love Jesus. And if you love Jesus, you should love the things that Jesus loves. Jesus loves the church, and so you should too. And so your marriage should be a vehicle to cause you to love what Jesus loves, namely the church. Or if you go down in verse 31, Paul actually cites a line from the first marriage bookend all the way back in Genesis, because he knows the big picture, right? About the two becoming one flesh. And here's the deal. When he gets to verse 32 after verse 31, look at it. He just worshipfully throws his hands in the air and he goes, this is such an unreal, profound mystery, this Christ and the church. Meaning, this is what Paul's thinking. I don't know where the reality ends and the metaphor begins between husbands and wives and Christ and the church. This is the whole family should be a little church and church should be a big family thing. And here's the rationale. Again, because Jesus gave himself for you, you should give yourself to your spouse. And that should make you want to give yourself to Jesus and his spouse, the church. So watch. When we encourage you to join a community group, it's not to keep you busy. What we're offering you is an invitation to further be caught up in the mystery. It's so that your life and your marriage will further point to the beautiful mystery of Jesus' love for his people. And I tell you right now, if your marriage, watch, if it drives you into isolation and away from people, it is not rightly focused on Jesus. Christian marriage should lead you to give your life away in presence and service and with time and energy to the church. And this is, <clears throat> this is like what drives Ephesians 5. This is part of the impetus behind this passage, that the unity of marriage and the unity of the church would both be cultivated as we look to Jesus. So <clears throat> those are the big, broad observations. Let's look at some of the details of this, some of the trees that make up the forest. Um, <clears throat> and as we do, a, a quick theological illustration will help here. So in the Bible, you ready? God is triune. He is three in one. This is another mystery. He is three persons and one essence. Three who's and one what? Father, Son, and Spirit. All are fully God and each is worthy of worship and trust and obedience and devotion. But, you ready for this? Each member of the Trinity carries out their divinity distinctly. Think about it, because Jesus died on the cross, watch this, because he died on the cross, he is not less divine than the Father and less divine than the Spirit. Meaning within the Trinity, there is both equality in essence and distinction in function. There is no hierarchy in God at all. And then the same is true of the spiritual gifts. If you go read 1 Corinthians, Paul says that every spiritual gift is a manifestation of the Spirit. So. All spiritual gifts are the same because they are all the Spirit showing up in your individual lives. But 
The gifts are also wildly distinct in how they operate. Again, again, equal in essence and value and worth, but unique in function, task, and responsibility. Now, here's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, when we read, wives submit to your husbands, and husbands love your wives, whatever it means, what we're talking about is not superiority or inferiority. We are not talking about a hierarchy. We're talking about uniqueness in role and responsibility. We're, we're talking about the mechanics of reimagining our marriages. Just as there is equality in essence and distinction in function within God himself, so it is with his image bearers. So now let's actually look at these trees for a second. And if you are listening on a podcast on Tuesday, tough luck, because I got a big pretty picture here that we're gonna look at. <clears throat> this is Paul's flow of thought. Sorry if that's small for you guys in the back. This is Paul's flow of thought in uh, Ephesians 5 and 6 and Colossians <clears throat> 3 and 4. And I want you to just take a second and notice what he is doing. Notice how intentional and thorough and thoughtful this literary structure is. And notice that marriage is just the first section in the household codes. Now, the household codes in the first century addressed wives, husband, kid parents, and servants, masters, basically everybody who was under <clears throat> one roof. These are the, hey, these are the spirit-influenced relationships, if you will. And here's the bewildering thing. <clears throat> so look at it all. Look, here's the bewildering thing. Everything you see on the screen flows out of 521. 521 is, hey, if you are a spirit-filled church, yes, it's a spirit-filled church, every single Christian will be submitting to every other Christian out of reverence for Jesus. That's verse 21. Now, now watch this. While it's specifically called for, for the left column to submit to the right column, it is the presupposition that the right column will also be submitting <clears throat> to the left column, Right? Now, if you're confused, you're, Paul has you right where he wants you. This is what the text is saying. Now, <clears throat> this fact alone, the chart you just saw, that it's all kind of flows out of 521, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This fact alone, you ready? Would have left everybody in the church of Ephesus <clears throat> undone and befuddled with their jaws on the floor, and here's why. Household codes like this had been around since Aristotle, which was 400 years before Jesus. <clears throat> and Aristotle said, you ready? That the family, the household was the smallest political unit. And if we can control the smallest political unit, then we can control all of politics. And that means that the right column of husbands, fathers, and masters in Aristotle's day, they were absolutely to exert dominance in their homes. They were in complete control. Nobody questioned it. And if you did, you were in trouble. It was unequivocally a hierarchy. So when Paul shows up and he injects the household codes with gospel and says that the whole thing starts with equality, people would have been floored. I, I love this. <clears throat> Think about this. If a non-Christian woman showed up to church in Ephesus on a Sunday and somebody stood up to reread Paul's letter <clears throat> so they could talk about it again, when the reader would have gotten to this part right here, the woman would have been in tears because of the freedom and the joy and the dignity that she heard in these words. Not only should it be built on the foundation of equality where everybody's supposed to value everybody else by submitting to one another, verse 21, but she would have heard about her husband's responsibility to actually lay down his life to love her. And it's so sad that what was originally meant for freedom has been turned upside down. Now, <clears throat> all of this puts a really strange frame around verse 22, doesn't it? The husband's call, or excuse me, the wife's call, it puts a really strange frame around it. Now, if you're curious 
about a definition of submission, then here's the definition I used last week for verse 21. Submission is a conscious decision about the dignity, worth, dignity and worth of others and making that a higher priority than your own wants and rights. So if we take that and we inject that definition into verse 22, it might sound something like this. Wives, make a conscious decision to see your husband as a gift an image bearer, and make his desires a higher priority than your own. A higher priority. So ladies, trust him. Esteem him. Verse 33 says, respect him. Give him the benefit of the doubt. And a husband can feel so deflated and defeated without the encouragement of his wife. We need it, ladies. Also, ladies, if he ever says, hey, uh, sweetie, you have, to, you have to submit to me. That is not submission at all, and here's why. Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. So, biblical submission is a deliberate willingness to support and lift up so that real life happens as a result. And accountability is one thing, but you also can't make this about his track record. This can't be about keeping score, because watch, then that slowly unravels grace. So godly wives, here's what you have to do. This is about your strong and supportive readiness to hold up your husband into the light of Christ. He needs it. And ladies, I'm not totally sure how this is landing on you, but I do know this. This becomes a massive issue of your heart if you are warmly convicted about the willingness to serve and submit people in verse 21, but you roll your eyes and you want to push back about the serving and supporting your husband in verse 22. Like if you're okay, with verse 21, and you're not okay with verse 22 because it kind of makes you want to clench your, your hands and your teeth, that means God's probably up to something in your heart. Also, all of these things are echoes of Genesis 2. <clears throat> when Eve is called a suitable helper, which is also a phrase that has been abused, the word helper there is primarily used about God in the Old Testament, that he is the helper of Israel. This is not a second-tier job or role. This is about equality in essence and distinction in function when it comes to Christian marriage. And if you want my honest opinion, the actual hardest part of all of this, for husbands too, is that we are given zero specifics on how to actually do this. Thanks a lot, Paul, you jerk. Like we're given zero, hey, here's who needs to take out the trash and do the lawn and here's who works outside the home and here's who actually makes decisions and does finances and disciplines the kids and does the laundry. No, Paul's just like, <laughs> like he doesn't give us anything, right? And so guess what that means? That means that these things are, you ready? At their root about our posture and our attitude and our heart towards one another in marriage. That's what these things are about. And that's scary. <clears throat> that's like Jesus, you've heard it said, but I say unto you kind of thing. My friend Christy Cole <clears throat> has written a book on this and she says the biggest temptation for women at this point is autonomy. <clears throat> autonomy is about self. This is what Christy writes. If a woman rejects her calling and embraces autonomy, she becomes further absorbed with self, resulting in either self-promotion or self-protection. She will either move into a position of self-protection, defending herself from anything perceived as negative, or she will self-promote, elevating herself and leveraging her power over others. Essentially, when a married woman doesn't submit to her husband, she submits to herself, and that is the sin of autonomy. Now, that's heavy, and my girl Christy's throwing heat 
But I think, I think against this backdrop, I think Paul's invitation here can be heard as a welcome into freedom, maybe like the, the visitor girl at the Church of Ephesus 2,000 years ago, maybe. Now, <clears throat> married dudes, your primary calling, verse 25. Look at it, verse 25, love your wives. Now, if we stop there, it might sound nice, nice and cute and maybe even mushy like up until this point. You can go by verse 25 at Hobby Lobby on, on something, something over there. But Paul is not done. Look at the qualifier. Look, verse 25. Love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So fellas, <clears throat> your wife is not your wife so that she can complete you or fulfill you. Do not put that burden on her. You were not married to her so that you can feel better about yourself. And she didn't marry you so she could caress your ego or shower you with praise for no reason and gratify any thought of physical intimacy that you've ever had. No, Paul says, love her as Christ loved the church. How did he do it? He died for her so that she could live. So your marriage is so that you can show her Christ and show the world Christ by you sacrificially laying down your life for her. Fellas, we have to get this. And again, Paul's annoying because we got no specifics. <clears throat> but since I'm a dude, I made some up. Here we go, ready? Fellas, <clears throat> die to your preferences. Die to your schedule. Die to your money. It's not yours. None of those things are your life. Die to your dreams. Don't exclude or preclude her aspirations. Die to your hobbies. Your free time isn't yours and it's not free. Die to yourself. Stop trying to have it your way. All of these things, all in order to love and adore and be faithful to your wife and your family. Give yourself up like Jesus for the sake of your bride. Hey, ladies, you got a role in this too. You cannot accuse, you can't say, hey, I don't think you're making sacrifices for me. Because guess what that does? <clears throat> that undefines biblical sacrifice. Again, our Lord Jesus, nobody takes my life from me. Nobody does, but I lay it down on my own accord. So biblical sacrifice includes a posture of willingness to give up oneself for the other. <clears throat> but guys, there's more. Look down in verse 29. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. <clears throat> These verbs are so important, nourish and cherish. These words are about tenderness and kindness and empathy and grace. And husbands, we, we gotta pay attention here. <clears throat> Your wife needs this more than you will ever, ever know, this nourishing and this cherishing. So along with die to self, here's what you have to do. You need to be near to her in the same room as her. And when you're in the same room as her, leave your phone in another room. You need to listen to her. You need to try to feel what she is feeling. You need to ask her questions. You need to make her feel like you have lost track of time when it's just you and her. You need to laugh with her and date her and provide for her and pray for her and pray with her. You need to enjoy her. You need to give her gifts that aren't for birthdays and anniversaries and holidays. You need to let her know that you need her so badly, that you value her so much, and you need to voice your gratitude for her to her. Now, if you're thinking, Thompson, stop. Just the left one's a break. That's a lot. That is so much. Paul politely says to you, the cross was not a little bit, bro. It wasn't. Jesus gave himself up for his bride. And that implies, just like for the ladies, that this becomes a heart issue. Guys, even if you do all of these things and then you write 24 more just for your wife and you do all of them, guess what? 
Did you do them all with the right motives? Was the gospel the only driving influence in your care for her? And this line of thought takes us to our core temptation, fellas. Again, this is from my friend, Christy Cole. She says that the key struggle for men here is passivity. Fellas, just listen and think about your marriage. If a man rejects his calling and becomes passive, he will become silent when he should speak, he'll be tempted toward stillness when he should act, and he'll be tempted toward abandonment when he should be present. Jesus never did any of that. Essentially, when a married man doesn't actively love his wife and sacrifice for her, his apathetic lack of engagement will paint him into the sin of passivity. And that is terrifying because it is, because it is not Christ-like. So God, may that never be true of us. Now, <clears throat> okay, Jim, that was a lot. You put all those up. That was all the details on the trees and the bark and the stuff. I got the last 10 minutes for you on a single half-screen slide here. Here it is, <clears throat> last 10 minutes. In a Christian marriage, wives should resist autonomy by submitting to their husbands in support, strength, trust, and encouragement. And husbands should resist passivity by sacrificially loving their wives with grace, compassion, devotion, and joy. <clears throat> so according to Ephesians 5, yes, there better be mutual submission as the foundation, mutual deference as the foundation of your relationship. And then Paul tells us it should look something like this. Ladies, reject autonomy. Your husband needs your support, strength, trust, and encouragement. And fellas, reject passivity. Your wife needs your sacrificial love. She needs your compassion, your devotion, your, your joy. Now, I hope you, if you're thinking about what scripture says and you're thinking about your marriage, some of you might wanna go, okay, I'm gonna point a finger now because there are things in her, there are things in him that if he fixed that, if she fixed that, we'd be good. And I'll tell you right now, blame will blow this whole thing up. Along with autonomy and passivity, blame married to those things is an ultimate danger. Right now, you need to be going, <clears throat> Lord, how do, how do I need to do this? How do you need to fix me? How do you need to work on me? Holy Spirit, what do you need to change in me? Like, how do we have any hope of living these things out? This is where we have to zoom back from the trees to, to the whole forest. Why is this the shape of Christian marriage? Why? Because this is the entire shape of the Christian story. Jesus is the only hope we have for living these things out. And we should have Jesus-shaped marriages because the Bible tells a Jesus-shaped story. The whole thing begins and ends. It's the marriage bookends, right? And that means that all of our marriages now need to be little windows through which people can see God's covenant kindness on display. And we can't do this on our own. We can't do it on our own. We have to cling to Christ. We have to cast ourselves on his mercy. We have to depend on him and trust in him that our marriages would be living pictures of the gospel so that other people could see the sin-forgiving, death-conquering, hope-sustaining love of God in him. And so as we reimagine marriage around Jesus, look, yes, it should make you love him more. That's the biggest thing. It should make you love his church more, but it should also draw you into life and intimacy with your spouse and posture your heart, to, heart towards them in service and in care, all so that God will be seen as glorious and good. Ladies, you do not lead this thing. And fellas, you don't lead it either. 
Jesus sings lead here. He is the melody to God's purposes in the world. And every one of us, by his grace, we are just learning to sing our harmony parts so that the gospel song resounds more beautifully to a listening world. That's what's going on in Ephesians 5. Lastly, and one more time, if you're here and you're not married, um, I love Forrest Gump, all right? That's good. But I tell you right now, your life is not a feather in the breeze. It's not random. It's not arbitrary. Your life has a purpose. And it's the exact same purpose as all the married people in here. It's the same purpose, to shine a spotlight on the unwavering mercy and faithfulness and love of God that is on display in Jesus. That's our purpose. That's our job. And I think we can see these things alive and breathing here in Ephesians 5. And I hope that the faithfulness of God is more wonderful to you because of this passage. So Fellowship Greenville, I got really good news for you. Ready? You are the bride of Christ. And he has given himself for you so that you might live. You are chosen and you are beloved. You are nourished and you are cherished. You are his delight. You are the object of Jesus' affections. And I hope today that that is beautiful to you and sweet to you, and I hope you believe that it's true. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, would you cause us right now, as a church family, to have a fresh, powerful picture of Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus before us, his loyalty and commitment to his bride, the church. Please, Holy Spirit, show us that. Remind us of that. Cause us to see that. Jesus, please give us a renewed gratitude for your self-giving love, for your sacrifice. And may all of our marriages, may our, our singleness, may all of our lives be a reflection to the world of what you have done for us. May our lives be one long song of praise and thanks because of what you have done for us. Please, Jesus, make it so. Jesus, we love you. You're the best. Amen.